Section 3 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 1, From the Beginning until the Death of Alexander I, 1825, by Shimon Dubunov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 2. The Jewish Colonies in Poland and Lithuania. Part 1. 1. The Immigration from Western Europe during the period of the Crusades. While the Jewish colonies on the shores of the Black Sea and on the territory of modern South Russia were, due to immigrations from the lands of the Greco-Byzantine and Mohammedan East, the Jewish settlements in Poland were founded by the newcomers from Western Europe from the lands of German culture and the Latin faith. This division was the natural product of the historic development that made Slavonian Russia gravitate toward the east and Slavonian Poland turn towards the west. Even prior to her joining the ecclesiastic organization of the west, Poland had attained to prominence as a commercial colony of Germany. The Slav lands on the banks of the Varta and Vistula, being nearest to the Western Europe, were bound to attract the Jews at a very early period in their capacity as international traders. There is reason to believe that as far back as the 9th century, Jews living in the German provinces of Charlemagne's empire carried on commerce with the neighboring Slav countries and visited Poland with their merchandise. This ephemeral visit frequently led to their permanent settlement in those strange lands. Information concerning the Jews of pre-Christian Poland has come down to us in the shape of Hage legend. One of these legends narrates that after the death of Prince Popiel, about the middle of the 9th century, the Poles assembled in Krusiewica, their ancient capital, to choose a successor to the dead sovereign. After prolonged disputes concerning the person to be elected, it was finally agreed that the first man found entering the town the following morning should be chosen as the ruler. It so happened that on the following morning, the first to enter the town was the Jew Abraham Prokhovnik. He was seized and proclaimed prince but he declined the honor, urging that it be accorded to a wise Pole by the name of Piast, who thus became the progenitor of the Piast dynasty. Another legend has it that at the end of the ninth century, a Jewish delegation from Germany waited upon the Polish prince Leszek to plead for the admission of Jews into Poland. Leszek subjected the delegates to a protracted cross-examination concerning the principles of the Jewish religion and Jewish morality, and finally complied with their request. Thereupon, large numbers of German Jews began to arrive in Poland, and in 905 they obtained special written privileges, which, according to the same legend, were subsequently lost. These obscure tales, though lacking all foundation in fact, and undoubtedly invented in much later times, 
contain a grain of historic truth in that they indicate the existence of Jewish settlements in pagan Poland and point to their German origin. The propagation of Latin Christianity in Poland beginning with 966, which placed the country under the control not only of the emperors of Germany, but also of its bishops as the representatives of the Roman See, was bound to stimulate the intercourse between the two countries and result in an increased influx of Jewish merchants and settlers. However, this slow commercial colonization would scarcely have assumed any considerable dimensions had not exceptional circumstances forced a large number of Jews to seek refuge in Poland. A compulsory immigration of this kind began after the First Crusade in 1096. It started in nearby Slavonian Bohemia, where the Crusaders attacked the Jews of Prague and converted them forcibly to Christianity. The Bohemian Jews made up their minds to flee to neighboring Poland, which had not yet been reached by the devastating Christian hosts. The Bohemian prince Bratislav robbed the immigrants on the way, but even this could not prevent many of them from leaving the country in which both people and government were hostile to them. 1098. Beginning with this period, there was a steady flow of Jews from the Rhine and Danube provinces into Poland, increasing in volumes as a result of the Crusades, 1146 and 1147 and 1196, and the severe Jewish persecutions in Germany. The accentuation of Jewish suffering in Germany during the 12th and 13th centuries, when the royal power was incapable of shielding its Kammerknechte against the fury of the fanatical mob or the degrading canons of the church, drove vast numbers of Jews into Poland. Here the refugees sought shelter in the provinces nearest to the Austro-German border, Krakow, Posen, Kalish, and Silesia. The first signs of discord between Christian and Jews are to be noticed in the second half of the 12th century, when Poland fell asunder into several feudal principalities or appanages. The Prince of Great Poland, Mieczysław III, the Old, in his desire to enforce law and order, found it necessary to issue in 1173 strict injunctions forbidding all kinds of violence against the Jews and, in particular, the attacks upon them by Christian scholars, the pupils of the ecclesiastic and monastic colleges. Those found guilty of such attacks were to be heavily fined. On the whole, the rulers were willing to take the Jews under their protection. Under Mieczysław the Old, Casimir the Just, and Leszek the White, who reigned at the end of the 12th and the beginning of the 13th century, the Jews farmed and administered the mint of Great and of Little Poland. On the coins struck by these Jews, many of which have come down to us, the names of the ruling princes are marked in Hebrew characters. At the very beginning of the 13th century, 1203 to 1207, we hear of Jews owning lands and estates in Polish Silesia. 
Such was the rise and growth of the Jewish colonies in Poland. As time went on, the commercial intercourse between these colonies and the West led to a spiritual relationship between them and the centers of Jewish culture in Europe. A contemporary Bohemian scholar of the Tosafist school, Rabbi Eliezer, informs us that the Jews of Poland, Russia, and Hungary, having no scholars of their own, invited their spiritual leaders from other countries, probably from Germany. These foreign scholars occupied the post of the rabbis, cantors, and school teachers among them, and were remunerated for their services. At the same time, studious Polish Jews were in the habit of going abroad to perfect themselves in the sciences, as was also the case with the Jewish settlers in Russia. From the German mother country, the Polish Jews received not only their language, a German dialect, which subsequently developed into the Polish-Jewish jargon or Yiddish, but also their religious culture and their communal organization. All this, however, was in an embryonic stage and only gradually unfolded in the following period. 2. The Charter of Prince Boleslav and the Canons of the Church The importance of Jewish immigration for the economic development of Poland was first realized by the feudal Polish princes of the 13th century. Prompted by the desire of cultivating industrial activities in their dominions, these princes gladly welcomed settlers from Germany without making a distinction between Jews and Christians. Nor did the native Slav population suffer inconvenience from this immigration, which, on the contrary, brought the first element of higher civilization into the country. In a land which had not yet emerged from primitive stage of agricultural economy and possessed only two fixed classes, owners of the soil and tillers of the soil, the Jews naturally represented the third estate, acting as the pioneers of trade and finance. They put their capital in circulation by launching industrial undertakings, by leasing estates, and farming various articles of revenue, salt mines, customs duties, and by engaging in money lending. The native population, which medieval culture, with its religious intolerance and class prejudice, had not yet had time to train properly, lived at peace with the Jews. The influence of the church on the one hand, and that of adjacent Christian Germany, on the other, slowly undermined this patriarchal order of things. The popes dispatched their legates to Poland to see to it that the well-known canonical statutes, which were permeated with implacable hatred against the adherents of Judaism, did not remain a dead letter, but were carried out in practice. During the same period, the Polish princes, in particular, Boleslav the Shai, 1247-1279, endeavored to draw German immigrants into Poland by bestowing upon them considerable privileges and the right of self-government, the so-called Magdeburg Law, or Ius Teutonicum. The Germans, while settling in Polish cities as merchants and tradesmen, and thus becoming the competitor of the Jews, imported from their native land 
into the new environment the spirit of economic class strife and denominational antagonism. The best of Polish rulers were forced to combat the effects of this foreign importation and found it necessary to encourage the economic activity of Jews for the benefit of the country and to shield them against the insults of their Christian neighbors. Boleslav of Kalish, surnamed the Pious, who ruled over the territory of Great Poland, was a prince of this kind. In 1264, with the consent of the highest dignitaries of the state, he promulgated a statute defining the rights of Jews within his dominions. This charter of privileges, closely resembling in its contents the statutes of Frederick of Austria and Ottokar of Bohemia, became the cornerstone of Polish-Jewish legislation. Boleslav's charter consists of 37 paragraphs and begins with these words. The deeds of men, when unconfirmed by the voice of witnesses or by written documents, are bound to pass away swiftly and disappear from memory. Because of this, we, Boleslav, Prince of Great Poland, make it known to our contemporaries, as well as to our descendants, to whom this writing shall come down, that the Jews, who have established themselves over the length and breadth of our country, have received from us the following statutes and privileges. The first clause of the Charter prescribes that, when civil and criminal cases are tried in court, the testimony of a Christian against a Jew is to be accepted only if confirmed by the deposition of a Jewish witness. The following clauses, clauses 2 to 7, determines the process of law in litigation between Christians and Jews involving primarily pawnbroking. The rules prescribed there protect equally the interest of Jewish creditor and the Christian debtor. Lawsuits between Jew and Jew do not fall within the jurisdiction of the general municipal court, but are tried either by the prince himself or by his lord lieutenant, the voevoda, or the special judge appointed by the latter. Clause 8. The Christian who had murdered or wounded a Jew answers for his crime before the princely court. In the former case, the culprit incurs due punishment and his property is forfeit to the prince. In the latter case, he has to satisfy the plaintiff and must, in addition, pay a fine into the princely exchequer. Clauses 9 to 10. This is followed by a set of paragraphs which guarantee to the Jew the inviolability of his person and property. They forbid annoying Jewish merchants on the road, exacting from them higher customs duty than from Christians, demolishing Jewish cemeteries, and attacking synagogues or schools. Clauses 12 to 15. In case of a nocturnal assault upon the home of a Jew, the Christian neighbors are obliged to come to his rescue as soon as they hear his cries. Those who fail to respond are subject to a fine. Clause 36. The rights and functions of the Jewish judge, who is appointed to try cases between Jew and Jew, sitting in the neighborhood of the synagogue or in some other place, are set forth elaborately. 
clauses 16 to 23. The kidnapping of Jewish children with the view of baptizing them is severely punished. Clause 27. The charter further prohibits charging the Jews with the use of Christian blood for ritual purposes in view of the fact that the groundlessness of such charges had been demonstrated by papal bulls. Should nevertheless such charges be raised, they must be corroborated by six witnesses, three Christians and three Jews. If the charges are substantiated, the guilty Jew loses his life. Otherwise, the same fate overtakes the Christian informer. Clause 32. All these legal safeguards were, in the words of Charter, to remain in force for all time. The Polish lawgiver was evidently anxious to secure for the Jews such conditions of life as might enable them to benefit the country by their commercial activity, while enjoying liberty of conscience and living in harmony with the non-Jewish population. Boleslav's enactment expresses not the individual will of the ruler, but the collective decision of the highest dignitaries and the representatives of the estates, who, as is pointed out in the documents, had been previously consulted. Thus, the temporal power of the state, guided by the economic needs of the country, endeavored to establish Jewish life in Poland on more or less rational civic foundations. The ecclesiastic authorities, however, inspired rather by the cosmopolitan ideal of Roman Church than by love of their native land, strained all their energy to detach the Jews from the general life of the country. They segregated them from the Christian population because of their alleged injuriousness to the Catholic faith and reduced them to the position of a despised caste. The well-known Church Council of Breslau, convened in 1266 by the papal legate Guido, had the special mission of introducing in the oldest Polish diocese, that of Gnesen, the canonical laws, including those applying to the Jews. The motives by which this legislation was prompted are frankly stated in the preamble to the section of the Breslau Constitution, which deals with the Jews. In view of the fact, runs clause 12, that Poland is a new plantation on the soil of Christianity. Cum adductera polonica sit in corpore Christianitatus nova plantatico. There is reason to fear that her Christian population will fall an easy prey to the influence of the superstitious and evil habits of the Jews living among them the more so as the Christian religion took root in the hearts of the faithful of these countries at a later date and in a more feeble manner. For this reason, we most strictly enjoin that the Jew residing in the diocese of Gnesen shall not live side by side with the Christians, but shall live apart in houses adjoining each other or connected with one another in some section of the city or village the section inhabited by the Jews shall be separated from the general dwelling place of the Christians by a hedge, wall, or ditch. The Jews owning houses in the Christian quarter shall be compelled to sell them within the shortest term possible.
Further injunctions prescribe that the Jews shall lock themselves up in their houses while the church processions are marching through the streets, that in each city they shall possess no more than one synagogue, that in order to mark off from the Christians, they shall wear a peculiarly shaped head with a horn-like shield, cornutum pileum, and that any Jew showing himself on the street without this headgear shall be subject to punishment in accordance with the custom of the country. The Christians are forbidden, under penalty of excommunication, to invite Jews to a meal, or to eat and drink with them, or dance and make merry with them at weddings and other celebrations. The Christians are barred from buying meat and other eatables from Jews, since the sellers might treacherously put poison in them. These prohibitions are followed by the ancient canonical enactment forbidding the Jews to keep Christian servants, nursery maids, and wet nurses, and barring them from collecting customs duties and exercising any other public function. A Jew living unlawfully with a Christian woman is liable to imprisonment and fine, while the woman is subject to a public whipping and to banishment from the town for all time. The church council, which held its sessions in Buddha, often in Hungary in 1279, was attended by the highest ecclesiastic dignitaries of Poland. This council ratified the clause concerning the Jewish sign, supplementing it by the following details. The Jews of both sexes shall be obliged to wear a ring of red cloth sewed onto their upper garment on the left side of the chest. The Jew appearing on the street without this sign shall be accounted a vagrant, and no Christian shall have the right to do business with him. A similar sign, only of saffron color, is prescribed for Saracens and Ishmaelites, i.e. for Mohammedans. The law barring Jews from the collection of customs and the discharge of other public functions is extended by the Synod of Buddha to the sectarians, to the Christians of the Greek Orthodox persuasion. In this manner, the condition of the Jews of Poland in the 13th century was determined by two factors operating in different directions. The temporal powers, actuated by economic consideration, accorded the Jews the elementary right of citizenship, while the ecclesiastic powers, prompted by religious intolerance, endeavored to exclude the Jews from civil life. As long as patriarchal conditions of life prevailed and Catholicism in Poland had not yet assumed complete control over the country, the policy of the Church was powerless to inflict serious damage upon the Jews. They lived in safety under the protection of the Polish princes. And except for the German immigrants, managed to get along peacefully with the Christian population. But the clerical party was looking out for the future, taking assiduous care that the new plantation on the soil of Christianity should develop along the lines of older plantations and was scattering the seeds of religious hatred in the patient expectation of a plentiful harvest. 3. 
Rise of Polish Jewry under Casimir the Great The Jewish emigration from Western Europe assumed especially large proportions in the first part of the 14th century. The butcheries perpetrated by the holds of Lindfleisch and arm leather and the massacres accompanying the Black Death forced a large number of German Jews to seek shelter in Poland, which was then undergoing the process of unification and rejuvenation. In 1319, King Vladislav Lokitek laid the foundation for the political unity of Poland by abolishing the former feudal divisions, and his famous son, Casimir the Great, 1333-1370, was indefatigable in his endeavors to raise the level of civil and economic life in his united realm. Casimir the Great founded new cities and fortified old ones, promoted commerce and industry, and protected with equal solicitude the interests of all classes, not excluding those of the peasant. He was styled the peasant king, and the popular commendation of his efforts in the upbuilding of the cities was crystallized in the saying that Casimir the Great found the Poland of wood and left behind him a Poland of stone. A ruler of this type could not but welcome the useful industrial activity of the Jews with the liveliest satisfaction. He was anxious to bring them in close contact with the Christian population on the common ground of peaceful labor and mutual helpfulness. He was equally quick to appreciate the advantages which the known to flourishing royal exchequer might derive from the experience of Jewish capitalists. Such must have been the motives which actuated Casimir when, in the second year of his reign, 1344, he ratified in Krakow the charter which Boleslav of Kalish had granted to the Jews of Great Poland, and which he now extended in its operation to all the provinces of the kingdom. On later occasions, 1346 to 1370, Casimir amplified the charter of Boleslav by adding new enactment. In view of the hostility of the municipalities and the clergy toward the Jews, the king found it necessary to insist in particular on placing Jewish legal cases under his own jurisdiction and taking them out of the hands of the municipal and ecclesiastic authorities. The Jews were granted the following privileges. The right of free transit through the whole country, of residing in the cities, towns, and villages, of renting and mortgaging the estates of the nobility, and lending money at the fixed rate of interest, the last pursuit being closed to Christians by virtue of canonical restrictions, and therefore left entirely in the hands of the Jews. The Polish lawgiver was equally solicitous about enforcing respect for the Jew as a human being and drawing him nearer to the Christian in private life, in violent contradiction with the tendency of the Church to isolate the infidels from the flock of the faithful. If the Jew runs one of the clauses of Casimir's charter, enters the house of a Christian, no one has a right to cause him any injury or unpleasantness. 
Every Jew is allowed to visit the municipal baths in safety, in the same way as the Christians, and pay the same fee as the Christians. Casimir was equally interested in ordering the inner life of the Jews. The Jewish judge, a Christian official appointed by the king to try Jewish cases, was enjoined to dispense justice in the synagogue or some other place, in accordance with the wishes of the representatives of the Jewish community. The role of process server was assigned to the schoolman, i.e. synagogue beadle. This was the germ of the future system of kahal autonomy. It seems that in the fateful year of the Black Death, 1348 to 1349, the Polish Jews too were in great danger. On the wings of the plague, which penetrated from Germany to Poland, came the hideous rumor charging the Jews with having poisoned the wells. If we are to trust the testimony of an Italian chronicler, Matteo Villani, some 10,000 Jews in Polish cities bordering on Germany met their fate in 1348 at the hands of the Christian mobs, even the king being powerless to shield the unfortunate against the fury of the people. A vague account in an old Polish chronicles relate that, in the year 1349, the Jews were exterminated in nearly the whole of Poland. It is possible that attacks on the Jews took place in border towns, but judging by the fact that the Jewish chroniclers, in describing the ravages of the Black Death, make no mention of Poland, these attacks cannot have been extensive. Be this it may, there can be no doubt that, threatened with the massacres in Germany, large numbers of Jews fled to the neighboring towns of Poland and subsequently settled there. It may be mentioned in this connection that from about the same time dates the origin of Jewish community of Lvov, Lemberg, the capital of Red Russia, or Galicia, which had been added to its dominions by Casimir the Great. In 1356, Casimir, in granting the Magdeburg law to the city of Lemberg, bestowed upon the local Jews the right of being judged according to their own laws, i.e. autonomy in their communal affairs, a privilege accorded at the same time to the Ruthenians, Armenians, and Tatars. Casimir the Great's attitude toward the Jews was thus a part of his general policy with reference to foreign settlers, whom he believed to be useful for the development of the country. This, however, did not prevent certain evil-minded persons, both then and in later ages, from seeing in these acts of rational statesmanship the manifestation of the king's personal predilections and attachment. Rumors had it that Casimir was favorably disposed towards the Jews because of his infatuation with the beautiful Jewish Estherka. This Jewish spell, the daughter of a tailor, is supposed to have captured the heart of the king so completely that in 1356 he abandoned the former favorite for her sake. Estherka lived in the royal palace of Robzobo, near Krakow. She bore the king two daughters, who were brought up by their mother in Jewish religion, 
and two sons who were educated as Christians, and who subsequently became the progenitors of several noble families. Esterka was killed during the persecution to which the Jews were subjected by Casimir's successor, Louis of Hungary. The whole romantic episode presents a mixture of fact and fiction in which it is difficult to make out the truth. Similarly, blood reports have come down to us concerning the persecutions by the new ruler, Louis of Hungary, 1370-1382. During the reign of this king, when, as the Polish historians put it, justice has vanished, the law kept silent and the people complained bitterly about the despotism of the judges and officials, an attempt was made to rob the Jews of protection of the law. Nursed as he was in the Catholic traditions of Western Europe, Louis persecuted the Jews from religious motives, threatening with expulsion those among them who had refused to embrace the Christian faith. Fortunately for the Jews, his reign in Poland was too ephemeral and unpopular to undo the work of his famous predecessor, the last king of the Piast dynasty. Only at a later date, during the protracted reign of the Lithuanian Grand Duke Jagiello, who acquired the Polish crown by marrying, in 1386, Louis' daughter Jadwiga, did the church obtain power over the affairs of the state, gradually undermining the civil status of the Jews of Poland. End of section 3